I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the November 14th, 2022 issue. This is Season 3, Episode 5. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together to talk about what's new, but we'll also reflect carefully on all the research that's happened in the past and where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast that was produced for hair loss practitioners. But regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was produced for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The second Monday of each month is dedicated to the four T's, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. This week, I'll review six studies in this area. I'll begin by studies of telogen effluvium in children. What are the main causes of telogen effluvium in children? We'll we'll see in this study that stress, low iron, low vitamin D, nutritional issues, and some medical conditions are among the more common causes. And we'll compare this study to a study published earlier in the year from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and how this compares to the data we know so far about what causes telogen effluvium in children. Then we'll go on to spend some time talking about COVID and the types of hair loss that occur in patients post-COVID. I think we are of the mindset that patients infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus can in some cases develop a telogen effluvium. And so when patients come in with hair loss after a COVID infection, we're geared to think telogen effluvium, telogen effluvium. What I'd like to highlight today through discussion of various studies is that I think we need to keep a broader and more open mind as we think about the causes of hair loss in patients who've experienced COVID-19. Mainly that antigen effluvium, alopecia areata, and telogen effluvium are all part of the types of hair loss experienced by a patient post-COVID. And so we'll take a look at three studies that allow us to touch on this topic. We'll take a look at a study from the Japanese literature highlighting a patient who first developed alopecia areata about three weeks after COVID infection and then went on to develop a telogen effluvium. A really nice reminder to us all that Patients can develop two hair loss conditions. They can develop three hair loss conditions. And so I think we have to get out of this mindset that we're searching for the cause and more into the mindset what is the causes, plural, of the patient's hair loss. So these three studies help us in this regard. And we'll take a look at a patient in the ophthalmology literature described as having unilateral eyelash loss, which was described as a telogen effluvium might be a telogen effluvium, but through the discussion that I'd like to highlight with you, I think it's better put forth as a diagnosis of alopecia areata. And then a study which commented on a patient that developed 
hair loss with each respiratory infection that she experienced. And here at age 17, she had what was thought to be COVID-19 and developed again very, very significant hair loss. And the authors went on to consider it as an intermittent chronic telogen effluvium. Again, what I'd like to highlight here is that this is probably better described as a patient with perhaps telogen effluvium, but perhaps antigen effluvium. And I think these three studies help us address this very important topic that is neglected. And that is that post-COVID hair loss is not as simple as sometimes we think. And that if you're seeing a patient in room number five with post-COVID hair loss and you're thinking, ah, telogen effluvium, telogen effluvium. Room seven, post-COVID hair loss, telogen effluvium. If you're not considering antigen effluvium and if you're not considering unusual variants of alopecia areata, probably going to miss some important cases. And so I think there's this spectrum of clinical presentations after COVID-19. And it's not necessarily that it's just telogen effluvium, just antigen effluvium, just alopecia areata, but that patients can have a spectrum of overlapping conditions. And I think post-COVID hair loss is not yet fully defined. I think we're getting there. I think we've got some wonderful studies that I'll review with you. But I think we mustn't close down our mindset that we have just telogen effluvium or just antigen effluvium if it occurs early enough or just alopecia areata if a patient gets patches, but rather that there may be overlap between these conditions that we don't appreciate fully. Then we'll go on to talk about trichotillomania and we'll talk about a, a subject that we haven't talked about yet in our evidence-based hair podcast episodes and that is trichobezoars. Some patients with trichotillomania eat their hair and the hair can be lodged in the stomach and in the um, intestine and that can lead to a somewhat serious medical condition called trichobezoar which often becomes a surgical condition as well as a gastroenterology condition. We'll talk about trichobezoar in trichotillomania. We'll see that it's really not that uncommon that patients with trichotillomania eat their hair and we have to be open to the possibility that patients with abdominal pain, uh, anemia, abnormal blood tests may have trichobezoar if they have a history of trichotillomania. And then we'll close with studies looking at N-acetylcysteine in trichotillomania. We've mentioned N-acetylcysteine a few times in the evidence-based hair podcast, both for trichotillomania and data suggesting that it may have benefit in lichen plano pilaris, but here we'll focus on trichotillomania. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then. I would like to highlight some key learning objectives for this episode by the end of the podcast. I'd like you to be able to discuss common causes of telogen effluvium in children. I'd like you to be able to discuss the diagnosis and management of a trichobezoar. I'd like you to outline the types of hair loss that can occur in the first few months after a COVID-19 infection. I'd like you to be able to discuss the role of N-acetylcysteine in managing trichotillomania and the limitations of current studies. And I'd like you to be able to discuss key differences between antigen effluvium and telogen effluvium. And we're going to go through all this today. So let's begin then by a study by Chen and colleagues in pediatric dermatology from October titled Etiology, Management, and Outcomes 
of pediatric telogen effluvium, a single center study in the United States. This study really builds upon another study that we talked about together in Season 1, Episode 2 of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, and that was a study by Thomas and colleagues from Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, which also addressed telogen effluvium in children. So let me just remind you about the Thomas study, and then we'll go in to the Chen et al. study. So the Thomas et al. study was a retrospective study of telogen effluvium in children. They looked at children 18 years of age or younger, so children and adolescents. There was 42 patients in that study by Thomas and colleagues. 82% were female. And the triggers of pediatric telogen effluvium in this tertiary care center were the following. 30% had systemic conditions. Inflammatory bowel disease in five patients. Rheumatologic disease in four patients. And do keep in mind, this is a tertiary care hospital, so there may be more systemic diseases than out in the community, perhaps. 19% had an infectious trigger of their telogen effluvium, 19% had iron deficiency, 14% had vitamin D deficiency, and 9% had emotional stress. In our prior episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, we spent quite a bit of time reviewing the concept that just because a patient has telogen effluvium and is found to be iron deficient does not mean that telogen effluvium was due to iron deficiency. Just because a patient is found to have vitamin D deficiency, hey, look at your blood work, you have vitamin D deficiency, does not mean that vitamin D deficiency is the cause of the telogen effluvium. But these were the associations in that Thomas and colleagues study. So now we have a new study by Chen and colleagues Pediatric Dermatology, October 2022. This is a new study to address the causes and triggers of telogen effluvium in children. Again, a retrospective study of pediatric patients with telogen effluvium at the University of Miami over a period 2009 to 2021. So there were 76 patients in this study. The age of onset was on average 12 years of age. 88% were female, 12% were male, very similar to that Thomas and colleagues study from January. The races include African-American patients, Asian patients at 3% each, Hispanic or Latino at 62%, white 28%, and multi-race at 3%. 32% of patients had various systemic conditions including asthma, anemia, anemia, thyroid disease, GI disease, inflammatory bowel disease, again coming up, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. 67% of patients in this study from the University of Miami had an identifiable trigger. The most common triggers being emotional stress, febrile illness, as well as nutritional deficiencies, mainly low iron and low vitamin D. And so 42% of patients had no identifiable trigger. Emotional stress was present in 18.4%, fever in 14.5%, nutritional deficiencies leading to micronutrient deficiency in 12%, weight loss in 5%. And so you can see here that 
many patients with telogen effluvium, you just can't find the trigger. And that's consistent with other data in the adult literature that sometimes we just don't know the trigger. And fortunately, in many cases, it resolves. In this study, treatment involved addressing the trigger. Most patients, uh, many patients had observation. So you waited for the fever to go away. You waited for the stress to resolve. And that was the most common therapeutic approach, although specific triggers were addressed. So this study has many similarities to the Thomas and colleagues study from earlier in the year. It really highlights that in pediatric patients, children and adolescents, that stress, infection, low iron, low vitamin D are among the more common causes of telogen effluvium in children. It's certainly interesting in this study, as well as the Thomas et al. study, that inflammatory bowel disease is on the list as an important trigger of pediatric telogen effluvium. And so the micronutrient deficiencies and the systemic inflammation that comes from inflammatory bowel disease really may be an important trigger that we need to be thinking about and deserves more attention. But I thought that was interesting that that occurred twice. So let's move on now to talk about COVID-19 infection and three studies that really help fine-tune our thinking process in helping patients post-COVID with their hair loss. And these three studies I'd like to review with you now are studies that are recently published. They have given a diagnosis of what caused the patient's hair loss. This diagnosis may be correct, but I would like to work through some thinking by which we may consider other diagnoses as well, other than the diagnoses that were given by the authors. So the first study is from the Japanese literature from October in the Journal of Dermatology, titled A Case of Telogen Effluvium Followed by Alopecia Areata After SARS-CoV-2 Infection. So this is a really interesting study from Japan, and it helps us to remember that a patient may have more than one type of hair loss after COVID-19. A patient can have alopecia areata and telogen effluvium. And I think this is the type of thinking that's so valuable. And I think this is the type of thinking that's going to lead us to improve treatments for post-COVID hair loss and new ways of thinking about hair loss post-COVID. They don't think we're there yet. I think we're a little too pigeonholed in the way we think about post-COVID hair loss right now. So in this particular study by Reiko Kegiyama, the authors reported a 47-year-old woman who developed alopecia areata and then telogen effluvium. The patient first experienced COVID-related symptoms of sore throat, headaches, and fever. She went on to have a PCR-positive test for SARS-CoV-2, and she was admitted to hospital for high fever and a COVID-related pneumonia. Three weeks after discharge, she developed alopecia areata, she eventually improved, but 13 weeks after COVID, she developed a telogen effluvium. This too eventually stopped and she had regrowth. This is a really nice paper, a very straightforward paper, but it's reminding us that a patient can have more than one type of hair loss. And this is setting us up for a discussion that we'll talk about next, and that is that we need to be open to an array of possible diagnoses, including alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, and antigen effluvium. 
We'll reiterate many times as we speak today on this episode that when I see a patient with hair loss after COVID-19, I begin with the thought, I wonder if this patient has one or more of alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, anagen effluvium, scarring alopecia. And I'm perfectly open to the possibility they have they may have two of these, they may have three of them, they may have four of them, maybe they have five, another condition that we haven't discussed, seborrheic dermatitis. So I think we need to be open to this type of thinking that post-COVID hair loss is not just telogen effluvium, telogen effluvium, telogen effluvium, that it may actually be several different types of hair loss. And some patients have just one, but some may have two. We certainly need to be thinking about telogen effluvium, anagen effluvium, and alopecia areata, and these may overlap. These may overlap in the same patient. I think it's possible, as we'll speak today, that a patient has 1% anagen effluvium, 99% telogen effluvium. I think it's possible a patient has 12% anagen effluvium and 88% telogen effluvium. We'll see that telogen effluvium is probably the most common mechanism followed by anagen effluvium, and much less alopecia areata. But I think we have to be open to all three of these diagnoses. Otherwise, we become too rigid in our thinking that it's just telogen effluvium. I don't even need to look at the hairs under the microscope. I don't even need to take a history. I don't even need to perform a pull test or a pluck test or a biopsy. It's just telogen effluvium. Everyone develops telogen effluvium nowadays after COVID-19. I think a lot of people develop telogen effluvium after COVID-19, but I think a lot of people develop telogen effluvium and a bit of an anagen effluvium spectrum. And I think there are some patients that are developing telogen effluvium and a little bit of alopecia areata, or telogen effluvium and a bit of an anagen effluvium and a little bit of alopecia areata. So we need studies to really prove that, but I think that that's the type of thinking that's going to allow us to approach patients in a more open mind. So let's take a look at a study by Esser and colleagues in the plastic surgery literature, the ophthalmology and plastic surgery literature from October, titled Unilateral Ciliary Matarosis in a Child After Coronavirus Disease 2019 Infection. So Unilateral ciliary matarosis is referring here to loss of the eyelashes on one side. So it's a report in the ophthalmology literature of a seven-year-old boy who developed left upper eyelash loss nine weeks after COVID infection. The patient had a COVID infection marked by low-grade fever and fatigue, was treated with paracetamol, which we know as acetaminophen, He recovered from the illness in one week without any types of complication. But at a point eight weeks after his recovery, he developed hair loss on the left upper eyelashes. The right eyelashes were unaffected and there was no hair loss anywhere else. The authors in their report point out that the hair pull test on the scalp was negative, indicating that alopecia areata does not exist. The authors found that a gentle pull test on the left upper eyelashes was positive. Eye exams were normal, no signs of trichotillomania, all blood tests were normal. Patient experienced regrowth two months later. 
the author's view here was this was a type of a telogen effluvium. What I think here is that a telogen effluvium is possible, sure, but unlikely. That with unilateral eyelash loss in a patient with this history, I think we probably need to be considering alopecia areata, regardless of what the scalp findings are. And I don't think that a negative pull test on the scalp or a lack of findings of alopecia areata on the scalp rule out alopecia areata of the eyelashes. There's hundreds and hundreds of male patients that I see whereby they develop patches in the beard, but there's no hair loss in the scalp. And so an examination of the scalp in those patients and a pull test in the scalp is going to be completely normal. When you see a child with eyelash loss, certainly alopecia areata and trichotillomania have to be top on your radar. Infections need to be there. The authors felt confident that they had excluded trichotillomania. I think that alopecia areata is probably more likely in a patient with this history than telogen effluvium. Telogen effluvium tends to be more symmetrical. Telogen effluvium should affect the left eyelashes and the right eyelashes, should affect the scalp hair to some degree. Are there unusual variants of everything we see in hair loss medicine? Sure, absolutely. But I think it's less likely that this is a case of a telogen effluvium. It would be an unusual presentation of telogen effluvium with unilateral eyelash loss. It wouldn't be very unusual for alopecia areata to present in this way. Alopecia areata in this way can resolve quickly. We do not fully understand post-COVID alopecia areata yet. We understand alopecia areata, but we do not understand post-COVID alopecia areata. We do not understand post-vaccination alopecia areata. So we really are in the early days, but this history fits better with alopecia areata. Could it be telogen effluvium? Maybe. I'll encourage you to pull up the paper and, and dig yourself at the findings, but unilateral eyelash loss in a patient with this history would be more in keeping with alopecia areata. So the most likely COVID hair loss conditions, again, are telogen effluvium, antigen effluvium, and alopecia areata. Antigen effluvium and telogen effluvium are more likely to be symmetrical and alopecia areata is more likely to be asymmetrical in the early stages. As alopecia areata becomes more advanced, it can be symmetrical. The entire scalp can be affected. All the eyelashes, eyebrows, and body hair can be affected. But the early stages are more likely to be asymmetrical. This case seems to be more like a patient experiencing alopecia areata or an alopecia areata-like post-COVID syndrome. Trichotillomania would be second on my list, but the authors felt confident it had been ruled out. Loss of the upper eyelashes certainly makes one think about trichotillomania. Uh, the upper eyelashes are easier to pull out than the lower eyelashes. So finally, let's move on to a third case of post-COVID hair loss, again allowing us to develop our thinking skills of post-COVID hair loss. A study by Saki and colleagues in Clinical Case Reports, August issue, titled Intermittent Chronic Telogen Effluvium with an Unusual Dermoscopic Finding Following COVID-19. What I'd like to do is review this paper with you 
and highlight the possibility that perhaps this isn't only a telogen effluvium in this patient. So the authors report a 17-year-old female with a significant history of hair loss after respiratory infections in her childhood. This was her story. With many respiratory infections, she developed hair loss, the hair grew back, and she developed yet again another episode of hair loss, this time more severe, after what was thought to be COVID-19. And the authors proposed that this is telogen effluvium. So I'd like to highlight the possibility that this particular case by Saki and colleagues might not be as simple as proposed, and that perhaps an overlapping telogen effluvium and antigen effluvium, or perhaps just an antigen effluvium, may be more likely as the mechanism. So let's take a look at this report. Saki and colleagues report the 17-year-old female with severe hair loss presenting September 2021. Hair pull test was positive, but what was remarkable in this case was the degree of fragility, the degree of hair breakage. Hair loss was widespread, so diffuse. The patient had an upper respiratory infection two weeks prior. She had cough, runny nose, sore throat. And one week after those symptoms started, the patient started to lose hair. Again, the patient had this prior history of infections in childhood leading to hair loss. And this was thought to be another one of these patterns, although this was more severe. It was thought by the authors that this was COVID-19 that the patient had. It was never confirmed, but her respiratory infection occurred during a COVID-19 peak. She wasn't vaccinated and she had uh, close contacts with COVID-infected individuals. So this is available free online, and I'd encourage you to check out the report titled Intermittent Chronic Telogen Effluvium with an Unusual Dermoscopic Finding Following COVID-19 in Clinical Case Reports. The authors show an image of a patient with widespread hair loss with numerous broken hairs covering 90% of the scalp. The authors describe the trichoscopy finding as being that of empty hair follicles. What was unusual in the author's mind was the broken hairs and obliquely cut hairs and the hairs with different uh, thickenings and thinnings in the hair, which they describe as bayonet hairs. So there's all these abnormally shaped hairs and broken hairs that they describe and have very nice pictures in their report, including broken hairs and these bayonet hairs resembling the manilothrix-like hairs of alopecia or manilothrix. They went on to do a biopsy showing on vertical sections hyperkeratosis with follicular plugging, acanthosis, spongiosis. In the dermis, there was a decreased hair density, an increased number of catagen and telogen follicles, and a perivascular lymphocytic infiltrate. The authors didn't describe their proportion of catagen and telogen hairs, but there was no peribulbar inflammation that suggested alopecia areata, melanin casts, uh, and no fibrous tracts. PAS staining showed budding yeasts, which was ultimately thought to be seborrheic dermatitis. On horizontal sections, the authors showed an increased proportion of catagen and telogen follicles again, a mild perivascular infiltrate, 
There was also abnormal pigmentation and an irregular border of hair shafts. So the author's final diagnosis was that of a non-scarring alopecia with an increased proportion of catagen and telogen follicles with seborrheic dermatitis and an abnormal hair shaft morphology. And they felt this was consistent with intermittent chronic telogen effluvium. The patient was treated with vitamin D, biotin, vitamin tablets, and the patient recovered. And again, they have very nice photos in their report showing this recovery of very short hairs. So I think this is a really interesting paper. Is intermittent telogen effluvium the diagnosis? I'll leave that final diagnosis up to you, but what I'd like to highlight today is that I think that this case has features of an antigen effluvium that are so important for us to be aware of. It highlights that dramatic hair loss can occur after various types of infection, and dramatic hair loss can occur after COVID-19, if indeed this was COVID-19. The authors here are proposing that this is telogen effluvium, but I think there's a component of antigen effluvium here. And again, as we're thinking about post-COVID hair loss, I would really encourage you to think about antigen effluvium, telogen effluvium, alopecia areata in the same breath. You're going in to see a patient with hair loss after COVID-19. Is this antigen effluvium, telogen effluvium, alopecia areata? Or is it two of them? Or is it three of them? I think that type of thinking is really needed now. And this limited view of post-COVID telogen effluvium are what we thought about in the early days of the pandemic, but they're not as helpful ways of thinking now. So I think this is more likely to be an antigen effluvium, or at least an antigen effluvium with a telogen effluvium, given how quickly the hair loss occurred, given how abnormal the hairs were, and the degree of hair breakage. Telogen effluvium can occur quickly, as we'll see in a minute. We'll compare antigen effluvium and telogen effluvium. Antigen effluvium tends to occur one to four weeks after a trigger. Telogen effluvium tends to occur two to 12 weeks, more likely being seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. Hairs in telogen effluvium are typically telogen hairs. They're normal. They're normal telogen hairs for the most part. Telogen effluvium usually doesn't have hair breakage, but that is a feature of nanogen effluvium. Of course, a patient can have both. So I really feel that this case has features of an antigen effluvium. The patient's seborrheic dermatitis probably adds to the complexity of this case. There was perivascular inflammation. There was a catagen telogen shift, which we don't know the proportion of hairs that were in catagen and telogen in this report, unfortunately. But you can get minor changes in catagen and telogen proportions in more significant cases of seborrheic dermatitis. It would have been nice to know what proportion of hairs were telogen hairs. I think that would be a deal breaker, as the expression goes. Was it 18%, was it 22%, or was it 45%? In an antigen effluvium, you can see 15% or less, but sometimes in post-COVID antigen effluvium, we know you can see 17, 18, 19, 20% telogen hairs without anybody being upset. This is a telogen effluvium. In telogen effluvium, you typically see 15, 18, 22, 28, 30% hairs in the catagen telogen phase. 
So the proportion of hairs that were actually in catagen telogen is really going to be important in this study. We know that in the antigen effluvium that can happen after COVID-19, that it's possible to get a little bit of a bump of catagen and telogen hairs, upwards of 15 to 19%. And you can also see that in seborrheic dermatitis. So let's talk about antigen effluvium and telogen effluvium in general. Antigen effluvium typically occurs one to four weeks after a trigger. As I mentioned, telogen effluvium typically occurs two to 12 weeks after, usually more likely six, seven, or eight weeks after a trigger. Both are diffuse, but the degree of hair loss is usually more significant in an antigen effluvium. It's unusual for a patient with telogen effluvium to have hair loss to the point where all the scalp hair is lost. That's very unusual. You can certainly get very significant telogen effluviums where the patient feels, I need to wear a wig. My hair is so thin. It looks nothing like it used to. We see that in postpartum telogen effluvium sometimes. But the vast majority of telogen effluvium patients have significant hair loss, but when you meet them the first time and you've never met them before, your feeling is, doesn't look like you have hair loss. That's very typical of a telogen effluvium. Now, the patient, of course, may say, I've lost 40% of my hair. I've lost 50% of my hair. You have no idea what I used to look like. I'm devastated by this loss. Absolutely. But the thing you need to remember is that most patients with telogen effluvium that you'll meet, when you first meet them, you do not diagnose hair loss until you get the story. So if you walk into the room and you see a patient with dramatic hair loss, it is 80% of their scalp, 90% of their scalp. That's probably not a telogen effluvium. And that's a really key point. And I'd like you to take time to digest that. Significant, significant hair loss to the point of almost total scalp hair loss is unusual in a telogen effluvium. What's also unusual is hair breakage. The hairs that come out in a telogen effluvium are telogen hairs. And so if I take a hair off the scalp of a patient with telogen effluvium, and I take a hair off a scalp of someone with no hair loss by gentle pulling, those hairs are the same. They're telogen hairs. If you're taking hairs off the scalp and you're finding they're broken, they're abnormal, Something, these hairs are not normal. I'm not talking about debris around the hair or keratin around the hair. I'm talking about hairs that are abnormally shaped with the hair shaft, suggesting that the matrix has had an insult. Hairs that are broken, suggesting fragility. This is much more in keeping with antigen effluvium or other conditions like alopecia areata. Not typical of a telogen effluvium. The hairs in a telogen effluvium are pretty normal telogen hairs. It just so happens there's more of them than there should be. Dermoscopy or trichoscopy of an antigen effluvium shows empty follicles, black dots, yellow dots, pulpincus constrictions, tulipoid hairs, which are these hairs with pulpincus constrictions followed by a, a, a bulbular structure at the end, like a tulip. And when they start regrowing, you get circle hairs and vellus hairs. The trichoscopy of a telogen effluvium is not very specific. You can see upright regrowing hairs in yellow dots, absolutely. 
and circle hairs and vellus hairs when it's regrowing rapidly. But the trichoscopy of a telogen effluvium is really not very specific. And so if you look at the scalp and your feeling is, this is really, this is really abnormal. There's something very strange about this trichoscopy. Could it be a telogen effluvium? Sure. But I would encourage you to think about alopecia areata. I would encourage you to think about an antigen effluvium. I would encourage you to think about something else. The trichoscopy of a telogen effluvium is usually not all that striking. Yes, if you look up close, you'll see upright regrowing hairs, circle hairs if it's growing fast. But it usually doesn't catch the attention as this is abnormal. The biopsy of an antigen fluvium is usually not very remarkable. You get antigen hairs, a minor telogen shift, less than 15% in catagen and telogen, and no inflammation. We do not have a lot of good data about the histology of an antigen effluvium post-COVID. We have some data which suggests that you get this minor telogen shift of 15 to 19%, not much inflammation. But remember, we don't have a lot of good data on the histology of post-COVID antigen effluvium. We have one paper which I'll review with you in a minute. The biopsy of a telogen effluvium can either be normal or can show an increase in the proportion of catagen and telogen hairs. So do remember that. If you think your patient has telogen effluvium and you biopsy it and it comes back 16% telogen hairs or 14% telogen hairs, but the history suggests telogen effluvium. You've reviewed the history in detail. It's a classic telogen effluvium. The patient had aortic bypass on February and here it's April and she's shedding um, diffusely pretty good for a telogen effluvium. The history rules over a biopsy when it comes to telogen effluvium, and it's important to remember that. Eyebrows and eyelashes can be lost in an antigen effluvium. In fact, they're commonly lost. They can be lost in a telogen effluvium, but it's certainly a lot less common. So here we have a description by Saki and colleagues of a patient developing hair loss quickly after COVID-19 with broken hairs, strange hairs, affecting 90% of the scalp. It really favors at least an antigen effluvium being here, possibly a telogen effluvium, but an antigen effluvium as well. And so I think it's really important that we keep in mind these three diagnoses with every COVID patient we see, antigen effluvium, telogen effluvium, alopecia areata. There's two wonderful studies that came earlier in the year that we reviewed on this podcast by Miola and colleagues and JAD in May and Mazito and colleagues in JEADV in June. They're really important to know about. They've shaped our thinking. Miola and colleagues provided early evidence that there's more than just a telogen effluvium after COVID-19. They set out to evaluate 203 patients with COVID-19. 5% had early onset rather than late onset shedding. Seven of these patients with early onset hair loss were assessed with trichoscopy, biopsy, and a trichogram. All had a positive pull test. Trichoscopy showed empty follicles, and the trichogram showed more than 10% dystrophic antigen hairs. Biopsy showed mostly antigen hairs. There was an increase in telogen hairs, but it was minor, less than 20%. But there was an increase in telogen hairs. This was one of the first studies which gave us clues to this dystrophic antigen effluvium that happens after COVID-19. 
That study in May by Miola and colleagues changed our thinking from, do you have hair loss after COVID-19? It must be a telogen effluvium. Two, do you have hair loss after COVID-19? It might be an antigen effluvium if it occurs early enough, and it might be a telogen effluvium if it occurs late enough. I think we're probably moving towards a, a new type of thinking whereby we need to think, could it be an antigen effluvium with a bit of telogen effluvium? Could it be a telogen effluvium with a bit of antigen effluvium? Could it be an antigen effluvium with a bit of telogen effluvium with a little, little, little bit of an alopecia areata? I think our understanding of post-COVID hair loss is not fully developed. We're only two to three years into the pandemic. That's okay. We've got more to understand. But I certainly think we mustn't pigeonhole ourselves into thinking there's just one type of hair loss. Mazito and colleagues, also from Brazil, set out to characterize this early mechanism further. Fascinating study. Reviewed it earlier, but let's review it now again. It's incredible. They described a 25-year-old woman who was admitted to hospital with COVID-19. She required oxygen therapy, was given steroids, medications to reduce her fever. She had a positive pull test for antigen hairs. And her scalp biopsy revealed a dystrophic antigen effluvium. Antigen hairs, absence of inflammation in the infundibulum, isthmus and superbulbar areas, so it didn't seem to be alopecia areata. But the patient's hairs were submitted for electron microscopy, and the electron microscopy showed SARS-CoV-2 viral particles in the hair follicle, outer root sheath. And so this was the first evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can incorporate itself into the hair follicle. And so the authors proposed in that Mazito study from June in the JEADV that this early-onset dystrophic antigen effluvium is characterized by intense SARS-CoV-2 replication in the hair follicle, a high rate of dystrophic antigen hairs, a biopsy which is not very inflammatory, and a pretty uninformative trichoscopy, mostly showing empty follicles. And so we're now realizing that there are these three patterns of hair loss after COVID-19. There's the classic telogen effluvium, which typically occurs five to eight to 12 weeks after infection. There's this early dystrophic antigen effluvium, which occurs anywhere from two to four weeks after infection. And there's also an alopecia areata-like presentation, which is probably less common. And so it's clear that these can all overlap. We know from the study in the Journal of Dermatology from the Japanese literature that a patient had alopecia areata and then telogen effluvium a few weeks later. So I think we need to continue to understand post-COVID hair loss, and it's probably more of a spectrum than we realize. Some patients clearly have one type of hair loss. Some patients just have a telogen effluvium. But I think there's probably some patients that have a spectrum. They have 90% antigen effluvium and 10% telogen effluvium. Or they have 10% antigen effluvium and 90% telogen effluvium. And some probably have alopecia areata, uh, a diffuse variant, and we're, we're probably missing it. And some, of course, have a patchy variant. But COVID increases the chance of alopecia areata. COVID increases the chance of telogen effluvium. COVID increases the chance of antigen effluvium. 
And my practice has dramatically changed in the last three years. In the first six months of the pandemic, I would generally feel, oh, this is a telogen effluvium, patient with hair loss after COVID-19, telogen effluvium. The flu pandemic of 1918, it was generally a telogen effluvium. In the second six months of the pandemic, I would generally feel, oh, this might be a telogen effluvium or an antigen effluvium. The next six months of the pandemic, my clinical thinking is different yet again, and I'm thinking, is this a telogen effluvium or an antigen effluvium or alopecia areata? And now I'm thinking, is this a, a mixture of, of them? Is this a little bit of antigen effluvium with a little bit of telogen effluvium? Is this history a telogen effluvium with a hint of alopecia areata? Is this history a telogen effluvium with a hint of antigen effluvium? I certainly think we don't know, but I certainly think we need to keep an open mind. Given that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can infect hair follicles, and given that the SARS-CoV-2 RNA can be reverse transcribed and integrated into the human genome, I don't think we really understand the long-term effects of this virus. And certainly in several years ahead, 5, 10, 30 years, we'll have a good understanding of how COVID impacts the skin and the hair and how it even affects asymptomatic patients. But I think that now is not the time to pigeonhole ourselves into thinking that everything we see must fit into our current models. It might. But I think that our current models are used as a great framework in order to build, rebuild, and renovate our current thinking. And our current thinking is that we have a patient with hair loss. Maybe it's a telogen effluvium. Maybe it's an antigen effluvium. Maybe it's alopecia areata. I think our new thinking is evolving to be, yeah, it could be one of these three. Maybe it could be two of these three. And so when I see patients with COVID infection, we wonder if they have hair loss, could it be a, could it be a telogen effluvium? Could it be an antigen effluvium? Could it be alopecia areata? When it occurs early after hair loss, within the first month, I think in the antigen effluvium, this dystrophic antigen effluvium-like presentation is really more common. But we still have to think it could be a telogen effluvium. It could be alopecia areata. Those are less likely. We don't know if the antigen effluvium of COVID-19 really fits perfectly. The antigen effluvium that we feel fits our model and our definition of post-chemotherapy antigen effluvium. Probably doesn't. So let's keep an open mind when our biopsies come back of these patients, that if it doesn't fit perfectly with antigen effluvium, that it still might be, it might be an antigen effluvium variant. It might be this new model of post-COVID dystrophic antigen effluvium. When patients develop hair loss at two months or three months after COVID infection, probably a telogen effluvium, but it could be alopecia areata, it could be features of antigen effluvium as well. And normally when patients don't have any hair loss, we feel that, okay, there's no hair and scalp issues to think about. But I think with that data that the virus can be found in the outer root sheath and data from 2020 that the SARS-CoV-2 RNA can be reverse transcribed and integrated into the genome, I think we have to at least consider the possibility that if there's SARS-CoV-2 virus elements or in there in the skin for years and years and years, maybe it has some sequelae. We don't know. I think by thinking that it doesn't, we're blocking ourselves from future understanding of, of what that could mean. And I think it's healthy and very reasonable to keep an open mind that 
perhaps there are uh, sequelae that we just don't yet know, and more studies are needed. So let's leave COVID-19 and let's talk about trichotillomania. Two interesting cases. The first, talking about a trichobezoar. The second, talking about N-acetylcysteine. So trichotillomania is defined by the DSM-5 as being this recurrent pulling of one's hair, resulting in hair loss, with repeated attempts to decrease or stop the pulling, and this pulling causes distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. Not due to another condition, about 2-3% to of the population has trichotillomania. In adults, females are more affected than males, at least in some studies, but the literature is changing such that perhaps now we're coming to some sort of an agreement that maybe males and females are more similarly affected by trichotillomania than we ever thought before. In children, it does appear that males and females are similarly affected. There's a childhood onset and an adolescent onset trichotillomania in the pediatric population. In childhood onset trichotillomania, males and females have classically been similarly affected and it has a better response to treatment. When trichotillomania develops in 13, 14, 15 years of age, we tend to see females affected more than males and it is a more resistant form of trichotillomania. Patients can pull any hair, including scalp hair, which is the most common area to be pulled in about 73% of patients in the literature, eyebrows and eyelashes in 56%, pubic hair in 50%. It can be arm hair. It can be leg hair. There's two types of pulling, and this will become relevant in the study I'll review with you next. There's an automatic pulling and a focused pulling. In the automatic pulling, patients aren't aware. They just do it when they're playing, when they're resting. A focused pulling is when a patient purposely removes hair. It's more common as a person gets older and older. These are the patients that might stand in front of the mirror and look at a hair, an eyebrow hair that's a little wiry, a little coarse, feels strange, and try to pull it. Or look in the mirror at a hair on the scalp that's wiry and coarse, and they don't like the feeling and texture. It bothers them, and they pull it. That's focused pulling. Trichotillomania has a number of comorbidities. I think our role as specialists is not only to identify this as trichotillomania, but to be open to the possibility that a patient may have underlying comorbidities. And if we can get patients connected with specialists and practitioners that can help them with these comorbidities, we can change their life. And so I think trichotillomania is more than just identifying this is trichotillomania. We have N-acetylcysteine, which is a pretty safe treatment. Helps some people. Why don't you try it? I think our approach must be the diagnosis, helping the patient understand the diagnosis, forming a therapeutic relationship with the patient, and considering the possibility that some of these other issues like depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, OCD, bipolar, social phobia, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, abuse, skin picking, nail biting, and attention deficit might be present as well. And you may not have the skills to diagnose these. You may not have the skills to identify them. And we have colleagues that can help us if there is some inclination that this patient may have some underlying comorbidity. Helping a patient stop pulling is, is one thing. But helping a patient with some of these other comorbidities is, is life-changing as well. 
and we really need to remember that. Trichotillomania certainly impacts self-esteem, causes isolation, quality of life is much lower, and patients undergo many medical interventions on account of trichotillomania. And one of those is due to trichophagia, or the eating of hair. And one thing which is always surprising to me is that a large proportion of patients with trichotillomania eat their hair. We call that trichophagia. And it can lead to a trichobezoar, or this accumulation of a hair ball or hair mass in the stomach. And I think we don't ask enough about the eating of hair in our patients with trichotillomania. It's more common than we realize, and I think for many patients, we just assume that it doesn't sound like you're eating your hair. I don't get any indication. Patients don't admit they eat their hair. So if we don't ask, we don't get the information. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about a trichobezoar. It's a subject we haven't talked about together on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. I think it's really important to know about. It can be a medical emergency. Rarely it can be fatal, but it can certainly be a medical emergency. And patients don't tell you they're eating their hair. And they don't come in and say, I have a stomach ache from trichobezoar. So trichobezoar refers to a collection of hair in the stomach. And it's due to the eating of hair. The hair is usually the patient's own hair, but it can, in rare cases, be another person's hair, like a sibling. Trichobezoars were first described in 1779 by Baudemont. Human hair is resistant to digestion, so when it sits in the stomach, it doesn't get digested. It's also resistant to peristalsis, so the stomach contractions and the contractions of the intestines don't move the hair along. And so it can become trapped. It becomes trapped in the mucosal folds of the stomach. It gets mixed with food and mucus over time. That leads to impaction. And that leads to this massive blockage in the stomach and sometimes in the duodenum or the duodenum, which is part of the small intestine. Trichobezoars occur more in females than males. About 90% of patients with trichobezoars are female and they're typically adolescents. The average age is around 15 years, but it can range from 13 to 20. It certainly can occur in children. It certainly can occur in adults, but it's less common. Again, most patients do not admit to eating their hair, and that leads to the challenges in the diagnoses. And so what I would like to help today is to form some clinical skills so that you can be aware of the possibility that trichophagia and a trichobezoar may be present. Most of the time, you're not going to be called, do you think this is trichophagia? Do you think this is trichobezoar? No. These patients are showing up in the emergency room at, you know, two in the morning with copious, copious vomiting. They're sick. Um, They have anemia that is profound. So it's our emergency room physicians and our gastroenterology services that are called to evaluate these patients with marked abdominal pain. Masses in the stomach, which is thought, that, please come and see this patient. They, they have got this mass in the stomach area. I, I'm wondering if it's cancer or something. We're not seeing these patients with trichobezoar because they're showing up in the emergency room sick. So most patients have underlying psychiatric disorders, but not everyone does. There's anxiety, depression, anxiety, uh, anorexia, obsessive compulsive disorder, developmental disorders. Pica may be present. Some patients have histories of abuse. 
So these are really sensitive subjects to broach with the patient. There's tremendous shame and guilt from the eating of hair, but there can be a whole associated level of other mental health issues that, that need addressing in the patient presenting with trichophagia and trichobezoar. And so these patients really need sensitive care to first help manage the medical emergency at hand and then go on to help the patient with their psychiatric comorbidities. We don't really know the true incidence and prevalence of trichobezoar. It's thought that 50 to 30% of patients with trichotillomania eat their hair, but of those patients, maybe 1 to 37% will develop a trichobezoar. They have a variety of different stories, so they're not one story. They certainly have trichotillomania in many cases with trichophagia, but that may not be apparent on history. What may be apparent is they have abdominal pain, loss of appetite, weight loss, early satiety, meaning they have a few mouthfuls of food and say, I'm full, I really don't feel hungry, I don't want to eat anymore. They have nausea, they have vomiting. Sometimes they have a painful lump in the abdominal area. And the most common finding on examination is a painful, is a lump. Not always painful, but a lump. And some patients have what's called Rapunzel syndrome, named after the Grimm's brother fairy tale. So Rapunzel syndrome was described in 1968, and it describes hair that not only extends down from the tower, as in the Rapunzel fairy tale, but hair that extends down beyond the stomach, extends beyond the pylorus and into the small intestine, into the duodenum, even to the ileocecal valve. And you'll see def di different definitions, but the key with Rapunzel syndrome is that the hair is extending down beyond. And so if you think about the Grimm's fairy tale, the hair is extending by Rapunzel down beyond the, the windowsill of the tower. And here, the hair is extending beyond the pyloric valve into the duodenum to the ileocecal valve. I'll leave it up to you if you want to consider the definition that it must extend beyond the duodenum or it must extend to the ileocecal valve. I think it's all the same. It's Rapunzel syndrome. It's a syndrome where you have trichobezoar that's just extending the hair into the small intestine and causing even more problems. Physical examination shows a hard mass in the epigastric area. Patients presenting with that kind of pain in the emergency room will have lab tests done. They'll often have a plain film, an x-ray of the abdomen, which may show obstruction, a small bowel obstruction. Not usually all that helpful, although the finding of a small bowel obstruction will usually get general surgery to come and see the patient. Ultrasound is sometimes helpful, but a CT is, with contrast is even more helpful for these patients. And usually with that CT showing the findings of a trichobezoar, general surgery comes on board, uh, or gastroenterology, an upper endoscopy can be done. It shows the hair. Rarely hair can be removed with upper endoscopy, and the gastroenterology literature has a lot of studies about how much hair is it, how big a trichobezoar is for it to be removed with endoscopy. When is it appropriate? When is it too big? But the reality is that most of the time it's removed with surgical approaches. We'll talk about these in just a minute. 
there's complications that can occur from trichobezoar. And it's important to realize that this is a medical emergency. Small bowel obstruction can occur. Ulceration can occur into susception, where one part of the intestine telescopes into another. Malnutrition can occur. Death can occur from trichobezoar. Patients can have pancreatitis. Patients can have infections, infectious complications during surgery. They can have peritonitis during surgery. And so there are these risks of trichobezoar. Fortunately, most patients do fairly well. Recurrence can occur in up to 25%, but most patients do well. So we have this nice study by uh, Lopez Alvarez in the International Surgical Case Report Journal where the authors describe a 15-year-old female with trichobezoar. She comes into the emergency department with an eight-hour history of vomiting, massive vomiting, no appetite for 15 days. She's had two blood transfusions in the last eight weeks for anemia, severe anemia. Nobody could figure out the cause of her anemia. She had a history of trichotillomania since childhood. When you realize that five to 20% of patients with trichotillomania eat their hair, you really come to realize that if you get a history of trichotillomania, you need to be thinking about trichobezoar. Now, most patients with trichotillomania don't have trichobezoar, but in a history of blood transfusions for a severe anemia in a patient with trichotillomania, we need to think about trichobezoar. In this particular report, examination showed a palpable mass, non-painful, gastric surgery got involved, and the surgery team performed an upper endoscopy, showed a large mass extending from the fundus to the duodenum. Several days later, the patient underwent elective laparotomy to remove the hair. The surgeons found a hard mass. It was 385 grams, which is 13.5 ounces, or just under a pound, and it measured 17 by 12 centimeters. For those of you who would like to see the picture, I would encourage you to see online. It's free with Creative Commons license, so you can just load up the paper. I will show the photo now. If you'd like to not see the picture, you can skip over it. But the authors show this mass of hair in the gastrointestinal system. 385 grams, 0.85 of a pound. This was causing blockage. This was causing the copious vomiting. This was causing the iron deficiency anemia that needed two blood transfusions. You can't get any nutrients into the body when you have a hair mass like that. That's a trichobezoar. It was later learned that the patient had involuntary nocturnal trichotillomania. And we, we spoke earlier that some patients have a very focused trichotillomania. They stand in front of a mirror or they focus on the act. Other patients have a more involuntary type of trichotillomania. This patient was thought to have a nocturnal type of trich trichotillomania, whereby she ate her hair as well in an involuntary manner. There was no one who really noticed the patient eating her hair. The patient had significant, significant stressors as a child, and this was thought to contribute to the trichophagia. She was referred to psychiatry for further help. So one must always remember trichobezoars in the differential diagnoses, in the differential diagnosis of young individuals, especially young females presenting with abdominal pain, teenagers presenting to the emergency department with abdominal pain, especially an epigastric lump, 
cancer is less common in that age group, trichobezoar may be present. Of course, emergency room physicians are very skilled in an approach to abdominal pain. Um, this is something they deal with all the time, but the trichobezoar needs to be in their differential, something that really can be life-saving if one identifies it properly and early enough. So we finish with another study of trichotillomania here with a study of the role of N-acetylcysteine in trichotillomania, a publication in the JEADV in August. We've spoken about N-acetylcysteine before. It is a supplement which is undergoing changes in various countries about whether it's over-the-counter or with a prescription. In some countries, it's becoming with a prescription. In some countries, it's in the herbal supplement store. It may be a treatment for trichotillomania. The most effective treatments seem to be habit reversal therapy. But treatments like olanzapine, N-acetylcysteine, clomipramine are treatments that may be helpful for trichotillomania. The safety, the reasonable side effect profile of N-acetylcysteine makes it a good option for many patients. Don't forget that we need to address the patient's comorbidities, the psychiatric comorbidities, and simply giving a patient N-acetylcysteine and have their hair stop pulling, but many of the other comorbidities in their life not be resolved, that really doesn't help the patient enough. N-acetylcysteine, this supplement is available from 1,200 milligrams once to twice daily, takes about two months to start working, and studies by Grant, who is really a leader in this trichotillomania literature, show that about 56% of patients benefited compared to 16% of placebo. Pretty well tolerated. Nausea, gas, diarrhea, rashes can occur, but not common. Studies in children are a little more controversial. Some studies have suggested it doesn't really help children all that much. Other studies have suggested that maybe it does, maybe it helps adolescents a bit more than children. A really nice study by Block and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry from March 2013 showed that in a placebo-controlled trial, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, N-acetylcysteine didn't seem to do much. That was a study of 39 children, age 8 to 17. They were randomly assigned to receive N-acetylcysteine or placebo for 12 weeks. Various scales were used to evaluate hair pulling. And in that study, there was no significant difference in N-acetylcysteine versus placebo. 25% of children with in the N-acetylcysteine group improved compared to 21% in the placebo. There was no statistically significant difference. So I highlight this study before we get into the new study in that the placebo effect in trichotillomania studies is huge. Capital H. Huge. So we need to be aware of that, that there is a significant placebo effect. And so as we review trichotillomania literature, as we review the pharmacology literature relating to trichotillomania, we really need to focus on placebos. It's, it's really, really important. Kaszewski and colleagues reviewed the role of N-acetylcysteine in trichotillomania, as well as skin-picking disorder, as well as onychophagia, which is compulsive nail-biting. We'll focus on trichotillomania mostly here, because this is the evidence-based hair podcast. But it's a nice report. 
Kaszewski looked at all the studies in the literature showing patients who received N-acetylcysteine and looked at how well did these patients do. They didn't focus on the placebos. They focused on the patients who got N-acetylcysteine. They found 60 patients in the literature with a mean age of 25 years, a range of 11 to 65. 40% were pediatric patients, 60% were adults, 88% were female, and 56% had a coexisting psychiatric disorder. Patients were given N-acetylcysteine at a dose of 600 to 2400 milligrams for anywhere from 1 to 10 months. 8% were also using medications at the same time as their N-acetylcysteine, mostly SSRIs, but SNRIs as well. Overall, about 70% of adults and 40% of children responded to N-acetylcysteine for their trichotillomania. The response time was around two months. 25% of patients recurred. Trichotillomania came back. And 20% had side effects like nausea, gas, diarrhea, depression, and difficulty swallowing the pills. But it's a nice review. It, it reminds us here that N-acetylcysteine may have benefits for our patients with trichotillomania, and it has a good side effect profile. The suggestion here is that maybe it's better in adults than in children, 70% versus 40%, but the authors propose that it may have benefits in children. What's interesting here, and we won't talk about it a lot, is that they also looked at the role of N-acetylcysteine in skin picking disorder and in onychophagia, compulsive nail biting. 58% of patients with skin picking disorders responded to N-acetylcysteine. 100% of patients with onychophagia, 19 patients in total, responded to N-acetylcysteine. So how does N-acetylcysteine work? Well, the authors really describe very nicely how it might work in trichotillomania, onychophagia, and skin picking disorders. They remind us that N-acetylcysteine is the acetylated precursor to cysteine. And N-acetylcysteine gets converted to cysteine in the liver, and the majority of that is used to make the antioxidant glutathione. But the remainder of the cysteine crosses the blood-brain barrier and is converted to cysteine instead of C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E, -E, it's converted to C-Y-S-T-I-N-E. So a different molecule with a similar looking name. That form of cysteine then stimulates the exchange of intracellular glutamate by the cysteine glutamate antiporter. Glutamate is an excitatory chemical in the brain and that kind of exchange leads to elevated levels of non-synaptic glutamate. And that non-synaptic glutamate binds glutamate receptors on presynaptic neurons, eliciting an inhibitory effect on the synaptic release of glutamate. And so the ultimate effect is a decrease in glutamate in the brain, in these areas, in the synapse. And that decrease in glutamate levels in the synapse is thought to block these compulsive behaviors like onychophagia, skin picking disorders, trichotillomania. So a really nice study. I think we need to remember that the placebo effect in trichotillomania is incredibly big. And so if we're going to talk about N-acetylcysteine, antidepressants, uh, you name it, 
we really need to have a placebo to really confidently understand trichotillomania. The placebo effect is incredibly large. And so this study suggests that 70% of adults, 40% of children benefit from N-acetylcysteine. We know that the placebo effect is at least 20%, and comparing studies head-to-head -head is really important. Uh, but there seems to be a benefit of N-acetylcysteine in adults, maybe in children. There's some debate. But we certainly have to remember those really good randomized placebo-controlled studies by Grant and Block in the literature, which suggested to us that not a huge effect in children, and in adults, maybe somewhat of an effect. But clearly more studies are needed in this area, relatively safe supplement for us to be using. N-acetylcysteine has undergone changes in the U.S., whereby the FDA has said that maybe we need patients to be using this on prescription rather than over-the-counter. And so there's a whole revolution of how you can obtain N-acetylcysteine in the U.S. In Canada, it's in, pharma it's in pharmacies, it's in health food stores. But various countries are reconsidering how they view N-acetylcysteine, and we've reviewed that on prior podcasts. But you may not find N-acetylcysteine in your health food stores in some countries, even though you might have found it a year ago. Uh, the FDA is consider reconsidering how it views N-acetylcysteine as a drug. So that's it for this week. We reviewed telogen effluvium in children. We reviewed a nice study by Chen summarizing that stress, low iron, vitamin D deficiency, infections, these are very much a part of the causes of telogen effluvium in children. 42% of the time, the cause is not known. But in many cases, the telogen effluvium resolves on its own. We talked about three nice studies of hair loss after COVID-19. One with unilateral eyelash loss, which was thought to be a telogen effluvium. I raised the possibility that it could be alopecia areata. We talked about intermittent telogen effluvium by Saki and colleagues, and I raised the possibility that there may be a component of an antigen effluvium in here as well. We talked about a nice study from the Japanese literature highlighting that patient developed alopecia areata and then went on to develop telogen effluvium. And so there may be more than one type of hair loss in our post-COVID patients, and we need to be open to that possibility. We talked about trichobezoars and trichotillomania and the fact that 5 to 20% of patients with trichotillomania eat their hair, and this can lead to trichobezoar in some cases. Trichobezoar is a medical emergency and it's often managed by our emergency medicine colleagues and our gastroenterology and gastric surgery colleagues or general surgery colleagues but we need to be aware of this and to help identify also the comorbidities that exist in all patients with trichotillomania and in patients with trichobezoar and having our psychiatry and psychology colleagues on board is immensely helpful as well. We talked about N-acetylcysteine and trichotillomania and a nice review in the JEADV reminding us that N-acetylcysteine is relatively well tolerated and may help a proportion of adults and perhaps a proportion of pediatric patients as well. That's it for this week. I thank you very much for joining me for this week's episode. 
Next week we're back. It'll be the third Monday of the month and we're talking about scarring alopecia. Recent studies from the past month or two in the area of scarring alopecia. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. <laughs>